Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast, and we're welcoming back an amazing guest. Uh, we have Tom Morris. He's one of the most active writers and speakers of our day. After an undergraduate degree at UNC Chapel Hill and a PhD in two departments at Yale University, followed by 15 years as a professor at the University of Notre Dame, Tom launched out into a new adventure as a public philosopher. He's the author of over 30 books, including True Success, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, The Art of Achievement, uh, Philosophy for Dummies, If Harry Potter Ran General Electric, The Stoic Art of Living, The Oasis Within, and Plato's Lemonade Stand. You can visit him at any time at www.tomvmorris.com, where you can discover more resources for your personal, uh, personal quest to understand the world and make it a little better. And his newest book, Out Now, is called The Everyday Patriot, How to Be a Great American Now. Welcome back, Tom. Thanks. Good to be with you guys. Always fun to see you two guys saving the world with every podcast. <laughs> I love Me that. Too, man. All right. So to begin with the passage from Tom's latest book, Tom wrote, in ancient times, Alexander the Great had to, had to start somewhere. When he was quite young, I suspect that to, a casual, to the casual glance, he may have been just Alexander the average, but he became great or at least quite accomplished. Though what he learned, how he grew, and what he chose, through what he learned, how, through what he learned, how he grew, and what he chose to do. Sure, he had help. Aristotle taught him well, of course, we won't be able to, we won't be, we wouldn't all be world conquerors, we can't be all world conquerors, but however modest we think our own beginnings have been, we can make a difference for our nation and our world by doing the right little things right where we are. That's the way it's been for all the greatest Americans of the past. They started out basically like you and I, they learned from those who had gone before them. And at some point they decided as individuals to take the action and make a difference, even if apparent, if even if in apparently small ways, but as their examples show, when you do the little things well, you sometimes end up with big results. And the biggest results always arise from a cumulative impact, each of us doing each of us doing what we can with what we have, where we are. Love that, man. So Tom, so can you tell us about the book, obviously, and then can we talk about how, you know, essentially, most of us focus on the bigger picture without thinking about some of the little things that we do, yeah. and how that ties into what it actually means to be a patriot? Oh, yeah, you guys, this is, so, it's such a, revolutionary project for me because I've never been a social political philosopher. You know, that's not been my area of expertise. And I just had a, a Zoom earlier today where I was talking to a really prominent psychologist. And, and I said, you know, in, in the area of public philosophy, there, there are two kinds of philosophers. There's the, the, the ones who talk about the big stuff, you know, capitalism and socialism and democracy and, and world trends, you know, uh, economics since Adam Smith. And, and then there are guys like me who talk about the little things. You know, what are the virtues? Uh, what is practical wisdom in an individual's life or for any group of people who want to, in Aristotle's words, uh, live well together? So I've always thought of myself as dealing with the little things, not the big things. But today in that earlier conversation, I came to this new realization, well, that you never get the big things right unless you get the little things right first. And so um, this book, it all started in 2001. You remember after 9-11, there was a big discussion about patriotism that went on for months where people were saying, we need to be more patriotic, you know, rally behind the flag. And the other half of the people were saying, no, no, no. That's the kind of nationalism, jingoism, adversarialism that the jihadists were exemplifying. You know, we, that's the last thing we need in a connected world. Let's get rid of patriotism, you know. So there's this big debate going on. I was kind of paying attention from the sidelines, you know, because you read the papers. 
But then I got a phone call one day, and it was an old friend, a famous TV producer, uh, Norman Lear, you know, all in the family, Sanford and Sons, wow. Jefferson, all those shows. He said, hey, Tom, I'm calling you because I just bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Cost me eight million bucks. <laughs> I said, Norman, I got one at Barnes and Noble for four ninety five. You're overpaid. And he said, he said you're a funny guy. He said, listen, um, speaking of four bucks, there's a guy who uh, who went to a yard sale in I think it was Philadelphia and bought a painting of frame for four bucks and didn't like the picture. Wanted the frame, got it home, started taking it apart to put his own picture in it, and there was a copy of the Declaration of Independence hidden hidden in the frame or uh, an original copy, uh, a Dunlap broadside, it's called, uh, printed in uh, on July 4th, 1776, to be sent around the colonies and read in public places so people could know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I'm going to send it on a road trip, you know, and and uh, so everybody in America can see the nation's birth certificate. And he said, I was wondering if you could write a speech, a real stem winder, you know, that you could go with the decoration. You could go all over the country and everywhere it stops, you'll give, a, you'll give this rousing speech, you know, a call to people to embody the values of the Declaration of Independence in their in their patriotism for the country. You know, in Norman Lear, a lot of people don't know this. He was a tail gunner in World War II and in some of the uh, some of the bombers over Europe that were getting shot down like you wouldn't believe. You know, he had uh, he was a guy who did military service. He did he did a lot of community service. He, he did a lot of things that his his grandfather he had to live with for a while because his father was in jail. And his grandfather would write letters like once a week, once every two weeks to the White House, to the president. My dear, darling president, the letters would start. And he would tell the president whatever it was he was doing wrong and what he could be doing right. And then every week or two, there would be this beautiful white envelope in the mail from the White House. And Norman, as a kid, thought, wow, they're listening to my granddad. (laughs) Well, I had roughly the same sort of experience as a kid. And I talk about it in the book that I drew some pictures for uh, John Kennedy's kids and and sent them to the White House. And my parents put a stamp on it. And weeks later, I get this letter from Mrs. Kennedy's uh, social secretary, Letitia Baldridge, who wrote a famous book on etiquette. And she tells me about how much Mrs. Kennedy appreciated the pictures and how much the kids loved the pictures and laughed about the pictures. And I had this sense that as a kid, I was connected to the White House. I was connected to America was my home, you know? And so Norman asked me to go around with the decoration and do these talks. And I think, oh, this is going to be life changing. And a couple of weeks later, he calls back. He says, I've got some bad news. I said, what is it? I had to turn it over to a team to, to prepare everything. Then word gets out in Hollywood. Now all the hottest actors and actresses in Hollywood want to go with the decoration and want to be part of this. So my team basically said, Norman, who's going to draw the crowds? Your philosophy friend, or or you know Denzel, basically, mm-hmm. you know all the all the great people. So I said, Norman, it's okay. Look, I'm gonna turn this into a little book. You want to sell it in connection with the road trip? And he said, Well, look, we're not gonna be set up for that, but every place we stop that has a shop, like a maritime museum or something like that, we'll get them to sell it. If you want to, you know, print this speech up. And so I did a version in 2002 called the Everyday Patriots, same title, mm-hmm. and then went around with the decoration. And it was privately printed. It wasn't turned over to a publisher or anything. Barnes and Noble at some point asked me to let them do it as a small press book. And so I, I didn't want to get in that, that business. But one man bought 3,000 copies. One man bought 3,000 copies of this little book. And I met with this guy about three or four months ago. Maybe it was five months ago. And he said, you know, your little book, The Everyday Patriot, back from 2002. He said, I gave it to 3,000 school teachers in my town. And he said it was life changing for the teachers have a new perspective on their important role 
in our nation's flourishing. And he said, but that was written under really different circumstances. Right after 9-11, foreign terrorism was the problem. Would you consider rewriting it for our time? He said, we got serious problems now that are really different from the problems back then. I said, you know what? Let me go look at it. From that day on, all day, every day, for two or three months, I rewrote this book. And I said, we do need something like this. I mean, okay, first of all, what's the chance, the sheer probability that a philosopher like me is going to write a book that's going to change it, save America, right? <laughs> change the world, save America. It's a chaotic quest, right? But so much of philosophy is anyway, we got to do it. We got to do it. It's, it's not about, it's like Hindu thinkers who say, you know, do the process, release the results. You know, I've been telling people a long time, you got to know what to embrace and what to release. Most people do it backwards. They embrace things they ought to be letting go, and they let go of things they ought to be embracing. Mm -hmm. Right? As a philosopher, I'm going to embrace the process. I'm going to try to do the best little book I can, rousing people to to a new hope. Because you wouldn't believe, in the course of explaining to a few friends I was doing this book, you wouldn't believe how many people said to me, yeah, I've given up hope on America. I've (laughs) given up hope. It's hopeless. You know, you, you can't. You're not going to make a difference. You know what I said? I have to try. Yeah, I'm going to go down fighting. And I think any philosopher worth his or her salt would do the same thing. We're not going to shut up just because it looks improbable that we can have the results we'd love to see. We're going to work hard at it. And so that was my last two or three months in a, in a, in a nutshell, a project I never thought I would do originally. I never thought I would redo. Entering into arena, I thought I would never play in. Uh, But just in this, you know, it's almost like our current problems from the biggest environmental issues to the smallest divided families who can't even talk to each other over the dinner table now. Mm -hmm. Uh, We philosophers better step up and try to make the difference we're capable of making. We better or or else we're we're derelict in our our duties, I think. You know, so that's what I've been. That's what I've been up to. That's my summer. (laughs) No, that, that's incredibly important, right? A, a lot of people, when they think of na- uh, being a patriot, they think of national, like you said earlier, nationalism, Jangoism, yeah. um, adversarialism, right? Yeah. But that's not really what it's about, right? I mean, uh, I was reading through the book, and I even found myself, I'm, th- I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I've had these feelings of of thinking like, oh, like, is it okay to even be a patriot these days? What does that even look like? Sure, you know, if you say, go America, you know, a lot of people associate you with a certain political, you know, whether maybe you're on the right or something like that, if you say something like that, yeah. that's not really what it is. And, yeah. and I think it's important how, like, what is, according to you, what does it really mean to be a patriot? Is it really this idea of adversarialism? Or is it something else? And is it is it something that is something a regular civilian can be a part of and not just reserved for the the great few, the Thomas Jefferson's, yeah, the Abraham yeah. Lincoln's, the George Washington's? Yeah, yeah. And, see, and, and that's the thing, right? I mean, I went through the same kind of questioning about this, right? Is, is, is patriotism naive? Is it like national narcissism? Is it like mm-hmm. I even say this in the book, you know, rooting for your high school team when they're already way ahead, you know, it, it, against a weaker opponent? Well, there are all these kind of unseemly you know, images that kind of make you worry, you know? So I did, I I do what I always do. I mean, as a philosopher, I would say my whole career as a public philosopher, at least, 
has been reclaiming concepts, like reclaim the concept of success from my book, True Success, reclaim the concept of happiness, reclaim the concept of virtue or wisdom. You know, it's like over time, the culture drifts into misunderstanding of all these important things. I think patriotism is one of those things. And I have to sort of work hard to reclaim the concept. You know, it comes from Latin and Greek roots that just mean fatherland, motherland, native country. And through time, you can see the concept develop over, over the centuries. So by the time you get to the Declaration of Independence, it's kind of understood as patriotism is, is an attitude and it's a commitment to making things good, making things good where you live, where you are, trying to raise the level of your community, you know, help that neighbor raise the barn, you know, help that neighbor bring in the crop. That's what a patriot does. A patriot's not just you know, ensconced in his own little bubble, you know, what's in it for me? What do I feel like doing today? The patriot is a person who understands, you know, like any plant, like any flower, you can blossom only if you're in fertile soil and the community is your fertile soil. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was inventing, I thought I was inventing a, a, a concept in the book. I thought so in 2000. One, 2002, I thought so recently until I discovered there was a Stoic philosopher who kind of had the same idea. And he's a Stoic philosopher we've never kind of heard of. Heracles, Heracles was his name, second century. Mm-hmm. Um, he's only fragments of his stuff. And he said, you know, he, he had this image of a concentric circles, right? The first circle is your own heart and mind. The next circle is your immediate family or immediate friends, and then your neighborhood, your community, you know, whatever other neighborhoods and communities you're in at work or whatever, uh, the city, the state, the nation, the world. Mm-hmm. And so, so I'm inventing this idea of concentric circles, not even knowing this, this Roman guy was talking about circles, you know, little circles and big circles. I did sort of come up with some stuff he didn't come up with on the circles, and that is that each circle um, – you should make yourself in your own heart and mind. The, the Greeks had uh, some great stuff about oikonomia, or from which we get economics, but was household management. Mm-hmm. You got to manage the, ho- the, the house of your own heart and mind first. And Plato says some stuff about this. I have Socrates say some stuff in the Republic. You got to manage your own heart and mind well. Then you can manage your household well. Then you can manage your friendships and your neighborhoods and your associations and blah, on and on and on. So every circle from the innermost circle of your own heart and mind to the next most uh, adjacent circle on out, you're growing and strengthening for the sake of contributing to the next circle out. And then the, it's the responsibility of the next circle out to then support the inner circles that are giving it strength. Mm-hmm. And so you can use this picture to come up with all kinds of stuff that's relative to public policy. And, and um, so part of my own reclaiming of patriotism is to say, look, first of all, it's about growing your garden where you live, growing your garden well, producing a bounty in your own personal garden for the good of others as well as yourself. You guys do that with this podcast all the time. Mm-hmm. You're not only learning from your podcast guests, you're sending out this learning to broader circles, right? And then mm-hmm. we love to come and watch. And so we come back and support and tell our friends about what, you know, the next guest you're having or one we just saw recently. And so the outer circles are supporting the inner circle. This is the way patriotism is supposed to work. And so there's nothing in this picture at all that has anything to do with gardeners fighting each other, you know, and in fact, let there be lots of gardens and let it be create a beautiful landscape, a beautiful world. 
it ends up with with a one ancient Greek philosopher saying, I am a citizen of the world. So you understand, and too many ethicists have gotten it wrong. Everything's got to be universal in ethics. You can't treat your brother or sister or best friend differently from the way you would treat anybody else. It's almost like a Rawlsian veil of ignorance over everybody and everything all the time. Everything's got to be universal. Well, wait a minute. Human beings are not like that. It's like, I treat my family in special ways, not so I can treat everybody else badly, but to cultivate habits in myself on a daily basis so that when I do meet that stranger, I'll have cultivated grace and kindness and helpfulness in, in my closer circle that I could then extend to the stranger in that broader circle. To me, that's what patriotism is all about. In fact, my best, so I, 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 you can imagine the book just came out. The official pub date was July 4th. Great. I love that. But then Amazon put it on a few days early, which surprised me. But so there hasn't been a lot of mail about it yet, but more than I would have expected just in the last few days. But my favorite email came from a 17 year old kid in Romania in Bucharest who said, your book, The Everyday Patriot, has made me a better Romanian. And I thought, oh, that's that just blows my mind. He said, I want to write, I want to write my own version. This is a 17-year-old kid. I want to write my own version. How to be, uh, you know, the everyday patriot, how to be a great Romanian now. I said, good, go do it, you know. This is what patriotism is. You know, I wish there were more Russian patriots right now stepping up and speaking out. But you know what? It's when crunch time comes, it's difficult to do unless you've been doing it all along. And that's where it comes to, one of my favorite overlooked philosophers is Iris Murdoch, who was this great British philosopher. And she's written all these novels and she's written a little tiny book on ethics called The Sovereignty of, of Good, The Sovereignty of the Good, um, or The Sovereignty of Good, which I've read it two or three times in the past. And she says, you know, we've treated ethics too long as if it's all about these fraught decisions, these really tough, difficult decisions. Um, what if most of ethics isn't about that at all? What if both, most of ethics is about the really little things every day? What you pay mm -hmm. attention to may build up structures of value inside you that just take over when the big decisions are to be made. If you've mm -hmm. built up those structures strongly enough, the big daunting decisions aren't so daunting after all. Like you end up like the, the hero. Uh, who rushes into the burning car or the burning building. And then afterwards, oh, you were such a hero. I didn't feel like a hero. It just had to be done. I was the guy there. You know, he had built up structures of, of value in his life in little things so that when crunch time came, he, he automatically did the, did the right thing. That to me is what patriotism is about. It's about offering up our families, our neighborhoods, our friendships, our communities the, to the greater good in positive ways. And if we get back to that, Maybe these little squabbles over this or that manufactured issue in the culture wars won't be so important to people anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it made me think of uh, the situation with Gandhi, where uh, it's like we're thinking about universalism. And here's this person who was this great humanitarian who also, who unfortunately, I guess, uh, had pretty terrible relationships with his children. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, on the one hand, I mean, we could think about it philosophically and say, well, I mean, obviously he contributed a great deal to humanity, but look at kind of where he was with his own family. So yeah. it's like when you think about these two ideas, and you, if you think about it, even in terms of left and right politics, you often see on the right where it's mostly a focus on family, and on the left where it's mostly kind of a focus on, uh, let's say kind of the culture or the sort of society at large, America, you know, the world at large, but you know, 
when we think of um so not to i want to kind of transition into something else though when we think about like american exceptional exceptionalism i don't think that that's what you're saying you're not saying you know it's all about our family or in this case it's only about our country what you're saying is that we can kind of work together as a network of countries as opposed to thinking okay usa number one you know kind of <laughs> fuck the world we don't want to be around with anybody else we don't want to you know we've, we're thinking about like trade we don't want to have anything to do with other countries we got it on our own that's not what you're saying american patriotism is right you're saying it's not really black and white but you can have a love for your country and then also in the broader scope have a love for humanity too yeah absolutely right and and the, it's almost as if the love for your country serves is meant to serve your love for humanity and whenever it doesn't serve your love for humanity something's going wrong it's like when any of those inner circles becomes tribalistic something has gone wrong and that's never good for the health of the tribe uh, not only does it detract from the broader circles, the broader world, but it also starts messing up things in the tribe itself, you know, so, so that's my view about positive patriotism sort of clues us into this dynamic in human life that ought to be operative all the time, or something's going to go wrong, like Gandhi looking outward to the outer circles, ignoring the inner circles, you know, we're all going to have struggles in our inner circles, so it doesn't impugn any great great work to say yeah but his marriage was was crap you know yeah sometimes marriages are difficult right sometimes relationships with kids are difficult but it should never be because you neglected those inner circles for the sake of the world you know and you see that way too often you know the the minister's kids are ignored the shoemaker's kids go barefoot as the old saying has it right and so i'm saying no try to do your best to get the things right on the small scale and then build from there that seems to be the best way to build out the moral life on solid foundations right and can we sorry and just speaking to uh gandhi right i mean yeah. we we can't get to uh, a good place by being apathetic right in our country there's yeah. there are a lot of people like like you described uh i believe one of your friends earlier who yeah. you know says all right uh, what's the point of doing it we, we've kind of lost control with social media with yeah. with this or that and it just feels like you can't do anything anymore what, what does it yeah. mean to be but an important uh, point that gandhi said is to be the change you want to see absolutely. Right? Uh, absolutely despite yes any of yeah. course gandhi yeah. wasn't a perfect person uh, for sure but that and i'm glad I, we don't wait for perfect people right because so many of the philosophers i've learned so much from i yeah. always find myself saying man i'm glad he wasn't my next door neighbor but i love what he says about xyz you know Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think there's so much potential in the everyday actions that we take to either contribute to uh, maybe our, our family, our community. If, if everybody did that, it could have cascading effects, right? Yeah. Where yeah. who knows what, like, like you said, it's not necessarily at crunch time when, you know, uh, the, I mean, you will make a big decision at crunch time, right? When things are getting serious too. But the idea is that like you said like that firefighter right i yeah. mean he just did what he had to do and it felt like all the all of his actions sort of led up to that it's not something that necessarily um he you know at that moment uh that's that's who he was it was a lot of yeah. things built up to who he was yeah absolutely like, uh, you yeah. know one of my neighbors was fire chief in miami uh for many years and to talk to this guy it's like um you know, it's not like, oh, I got to marshal some courage here. No, no, it's it's focus. That's what those guys always talk about, focus. There's a job that needs to be done. There's a problem that needs to be solved. There's a goal that needs to be attained, focus. And so all the rest of us who said, oh, my God, it's so dangerous. And they're just, they're focused, right? 
And there's a sense in which the moral life is all about focus. And if you wait until the big, difficult issue comes into your life to focus for the first time, you're not going to be real good at it. It's like the first time you went on a tennis court with a tennis racket and you could hardly hit the ball, you know, or, or any other sport. You're, you only get better by doing. It's like so much of human wisdom isn't propositional aphorisms, but is skill development kind of an art of living, which is an ancient idea that we've sort of lost track of in, in most of the world. But an art of living has to do with practice and has to do with focus every day. And again, the little things lead to the big things. And so that firefighter doesn't feel courageous, doesn't feel heroic because he or she doesn't think they had to you know, come up with something that already wasn't within a, within them on a daily basis. They just focused in a new way on this in this situation, and they were able to do it quickly because they had prepared for that. And that's my whole deal. Why aren't Russians all in the streets? Why aren't Americans all in the streets about various things? Right? Because we we haven't built up those values that would make us do things that outsiders look, would look at, onlookers would see as courageous, but we would just see as necessary. Oh, I need, it had to be done. You know, we wouldn't think of ourselves as particularly heroic. And that's the cool thing about philosophy done right. When ideas are done right, when wisdom is done right, when virtue is done right, there's a cultivation in normal, mundane, everyday matters that pays off in the big stuff in ways that could never have happened if the only time we ever turned our attention to ideas or philosophy or wisdom was when the big stuff hits us in the face, we're not gonna do it right. You know, We're not gonna do it right. So I'm just urging people. So the everyday patriot is not, oh, here's the time the author holds up the copy of his book. The everyday <laughs> patriot is, it's not some great departure that I thought it was five months ago or four months ago. I thought, oh, I'm doing something really different now. I hope I know how to do this. Um, but it's just a kind of a culmination of my concern for everyday wisdom, practical wisdom. And okay, it's to be lived. Well, what does that mean? Well, part of it, it means you're a better citizen. Maybe citizenship is a moral status. Maybe patriotism is a moral calling. Who's ever told me that? Nobody, basically. Um, maybe that's what we need to teach kids in civics classes, right? Uh, the fact that you're American isn't uh, as abstract as that you happen to live in a certain solar system. You know, you're in the Milky Way. <laughs> Good. You're lucky you. Uh, yes, I'm a citizen of the Milky Way. That's for a lot of people what American citizenship is like. It's this kind of abstraction. Okay, that means you, you, you get a certain kind of passport rather than another kind of passport. That means you can... You're supposed to vote in these elections as opposed to the people who can't vote. What is it all about? It's not an abstraction. It's a really practical moral status. And that had never occurred to me until I started doing this book. And so, and, sorry, just speaking to, to voting, right? Oh, yeah. I found it very interesting in the book, too. Uh, a lot of people have, over the years, had very clever arguments against uh, voting. I mean, it wasn't mentioned in the book specifically, but one person who came to mind was George Carlin, right? He said, oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not voting at all. It's all corrupt, right? He said yeah. in a better way, of course, deliver that nicer. But yeah, th that, that actually stuck with me a long time when I was younger. I used to think, yeah, that was a good argument. I'm not going to vote, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm reading through the book. And I mean, I, I started to think about it, right? It, uh, people have fought and died, right? For the, yeah. Yeah. the right to vote. And it's something that we take for granted that we think maybe doesn't count. But I mean, uh, what, what's, what's your thoughts on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I've had every kind of rationalization come to mind, too. And, and often in my life, at least, it was laziness, you know, masking itself in rationalization, which uh, uh, is, is half of what we do in the world half the time in, in, anyway. But it was like, yeah, what one little vote, what difference does it make? Well, it's your voice. And the whole thing about government, too much of, of modern politics has been about is the government going to serve you or is the government going to oppress you? One political party says the government's going to take care of you. And the other political party says the government's going to oppress you if you let them get away with it. And it's like, wait a minute, the government? Wait, a democracy is all about self-government. You know, mm -hmm. governments are us, you know. It's like if we do this right, this is us taking care of ourselves on a scale that otherwise can't be done. I mean, what if the, you know, People, would we ever have come up with the interstate highway system where roads across state borders actually match up? You know, would we ever? I mean, there are these things that are just too big for Elon Musk to take care of by himself, right? I mean, and it's like it's us doing it together. That's the way we got to think about our voting. Are we putting people in office who are the right people to represent us? Um, and I, one of the early readers of the book posted on Amazon just the other day. And he's a guy who taught Jimmy Fallon how to use the web or something. I mean, he's, he's this amazing guy. Uh, uh, he was one of the first podcasters, I think. He was one of the first and way back. You know, uh, he said, this book made me so feel." He gave me a five-star review. He said, this book made me feel so guilty. I joined up to help a political campaign for the first time ever. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's exactly what I want to see people doing. In fact, I've had two or three people use the same word. This book made me feel so guilty because really we're all free riders uh, to, uh, to such a great extent. We're just like, okay, y'all take care of it. You, you take care. Of it. I even talk about this in the book where healthcare is the business of doctors and, and you know, uh, law is the business of lawyers and, and politics is the business of politicians. No, 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 no. We're coming to understand in all these other facets of life, health, healthcare is everybody's business, right? And so is self governance. And it's like, how big a difference can I make by myself? Well, I do have one vote, same as Elon Musk or same as anybody else, but I can write this little book. And maybe through this little book, my friend, the Jimmy Fallon guy, maybe through his volunteering for a political campaign, maybe for a friend across town getting more involved in the Boys and Girls Club. It's like you start to then to leverage uh, your energies in what military people call a force multiplier. When you join up with other people, in fact, I've come to think that so much human literature is about the power of partnership. Mm -hmm. I, I realized for the first time two years ago, rereading the Iliad twice in the same year and the Odyssey four times in the same year, the Odyssey is about the power of purpose. And the Iliad is about the power of partnership, shown in two ways where it deteriorates between Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, and uh, Achilles, his chief warrior, their partnership just breaks down because of selfishness and, and greed and, and self and ambition breaks apart and then lots of people die. And then throughout the books, there are good partnerships where, you know, Ajax, who's this big guy, he gets attacked by a bunch of Trojans. And rather than him showing off, I'm going to kill all these guys by myself, he calls all his friends who are around him. Hey, guys, come over here. They all come together, they turn back the Trojans. Now, over and over and over again in the Iliad, you see that happening. The power of partnership when it breaks down, the power for harm, and the power of good when it holds, when it holds together. So yeah, the vote, 
the vote is one way of expressing your voice. And I think it's the way that we should never ignore. And you like you, Alan, I, I ignored it. You know, I've ignored elections where I didn't know the people running or I didn't have the time. All right. You know, and I realize now, no, it's an important part of the package. And it's symbolic of the rest of the package. So I developed this concept in the book, the concept of voting every day. So I didn't turn it around and reconceptualize voting as something else once a year or something. But I conceptualize these daily activities in your community. Like when I pick up trash on my daily walk, if I see something on the street, I'm going to pick it up. Uh, and that's voting every day. That's using my time, my attention, my energy in tiny little ways. You know, if somebody's left a Burger King bag on a beautiful street, what am I just going to walk by it and, and let the professionals pick this up? Right. No, if I can, I'm going to pick it up, right? And I'm going to look for some place to dispose of it properly because somebody else, like when I was growing up with a kid, I used to see people throw stuff out car windows, you know, every day throwing cigarettes out car windows when I was growing up. But then other things too. You know, uh, you know, bags of food they had eaten, and I think, well, they think it disappears when it goes out the window of the car. There are too many people who live like that, as if there are no consequences for what they do. Uh, and so if we can start tying the dignity of our everyday lives comes through when we see it in connection with the big picture. Um, and I was thinking about, I, I, was, I had an early lunch today, and I was thinking about, it just came into my head, Norman Lear and All in the Family. And that theme song that they would always sing, Archie and Edith would sing. Uh, those were the days guys like me had it made. Those were the days. Archie Bunker sings. Now, how many people in Archie Bunker's circumstances today, who are not hedge fund traders or you know running big corporations, how many would look back on previous years in their lives and say, guys like me, we had it made? Well, we want an America in which everybody feels like a contributor. Everybody feels like a dignified. I wrote a book called If Aristotle Ran General Motors, which was really not about Aristotle or General Motors, but people in organizations or in groups and what it takes to feel great and do great. Truth, beauty, goodness, unity, four things. And then I talked about four spiritual needs for uniqueness, for a sense of union with something greater than the self for a, a, a usefulness, which brings together your uniqueness with a greater union when you're useful, you take your talents and make them available to others, as, uh, the good of others as well as yourself. And then finally, understanding. Understanding what this life is all about uh, to the extent that we can. Um, and when you give people enough of these things, then you have this dignity uh, where you got guys that we would think now maybe are struggling and are often struggling, but do they feel like contributors to the greater good? That's what we've drifted away from. I was reading uh, Michael Sandel's book, you know, the famous uh, Harvard professor whose justice seminar is more subscribed than any other class in the history of Harvard University, I think. I, I believe my son was in that class a couple decades ago. So Sandel's been teaching it a long time, but he's got this new book out in the last year or two called The Tyranny of Merit. And it was like, it goes back to the 40s and 50s. It's like um, James Conant, president of Harvard, Kingman Brewster, president of Yale, until maybe my first years in graduate school. Uh, so these guys had this idea that we don't want to be an aristocracy like so many of the European countries that so many Americans came from. We want to be, what can we be if we're not an, uh, an aristocracy? What's left? What's better? 
a meritocracy. That's what we'll be. And, and it gives rise to the rhetoric about you can rise as high in America as your talents and ambition will take you, which every politician, every president says hundreds of times during their presidency. Yeah. And so Sandel didn't say, but wait a minute, in a capitalist society, you can have winners, you can have losers. Not depending on whether people work hard or not, but often depending on whether your talents happen to be valued by your society in a monetary way. So there are these winners who have this unbelievable hubris about talents that they didn't create in themselves and cultural conditions that they weren't responsible for that rewards their talents. They have this unbelievable hubris and those beneath them that they consider the losers have a completely unnecessarily sense of humiliation. Mm-hmm. that They are somehow not worthy. And so a proper patriotism doesn't let this gap grow between a few folks at the economic top of the heap and everybody else. But a proper patriotism, well, he talks about the difference between a consumerist ethic and a contributive ethic, where everybody feels like they're contributing to the greater good. And there's a dignity in that. So if I could even open people's eyes to that with the everyday patriot, it would be it would be great. Because, you know, Sandel writes like Sandel would write. You know, you know, and my whole attitude about books like The Everyday Patriot, there's a wisdom desert in America right now. There are the university presses that publish books by scholars for scholars. Right. Occasionally, there will be wisdom in these books, right? But boy, you got to dig it out with great patience and a, and, a, and a dictionary by your side. And then there's the trade publishers, the big famous publishers in New York City, mostly, who only cater to human obsession right now. You're obsessed with politics, we'll sell you a book on politics. We're obsessed with celebrity, we'll sell you a book on celebrities. Whatever the, the obsessions are, that's what they want to publish. Anything with wisdom? Only if people get obsessed with it. So there's this wisdom desert in the middle between the academic publishers and the trade publishers. And I've been trying for years now to get books out in, to, to, to bring some nourishment, some water to the desert, you know. Yeah. And then so I want to ask you kind of a tough question going back to kind of voting and sort of what that actually means. So okay, if come, you think come, come at me, let me think. Okay. Right. I'm ready. So, so, so if you think about the past eight years, right, I mean, kind of Democrats have been saying, well, you know, there's not enough voting, you know, people need to get out in the streets, you know, obviously, we need some collective action, all of that's been happening. But obviously, yeah. as you think about even just the past year, with Roe v. Wade being overturned, nothing really done about, you know, current gun laws. So it's like, how do you motivate people to kind of vote, right, when you're seeing that a lot of people have voted, right? We're, t- we're talking about like record turnouts, especially with the Biden-Trump election. People yeah. have been voting and yet still, I mean, nothing's really being done. And if anything, it seems like we're in a regression stage. So what would you say to that? Yeah, we're up to about 50% of the uh, eligible voters voted, which is amazing for us, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're all free riders <laughs> half the time. But let's get that other 50% turnout and then things turn around real quick. Because the loud voices on the extremes, and it's hard for me to admit that there are two extremes, uh, because, you know, I, I, I see and hear the obnoxiousness of one extreme all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, there are two extremes on the polit- political spectrum, and they get so much attention precisely because they're anomalous. You know, they don't represent what most people think. So if we can get most people to vote, Uh, We may not get everything we want, but we'll avoid everything we really, really don't want 
uh, will, uh, you know, can you get the lid back on Pandora's jar? You know, the, the original Pandora's box, you know, it's this gift box and you're not supposed to open it. And she, what's, what's a gift box you're not supposed to open? What sense does that make? But she opens it and all the ills in the world come out. Well, the original Greek, it was a big jar. And, and, and it, the lid was presumably an ornamental lid. You're not supposed to open it. It's just there for, to be pretty. And, but she's, she has these two qualities of curiosity and courage. And Pandora's curiosity makes her open the box. All the evils come out and disperse across the world, right? But then her curiosity doesn't go away even after this. And then the courage really kicks in. And she looks again. And at the bottom of the jar, the only thing that remains is hope. Well, that's the real gift. And that's the gift that helps her deal with everything else. So my view is, yes, we've gotten out more vote um, in the last two presidential elections. People still don't real. We, we've got a long way to go with that. We're not like with Costa Rica yet, where the, you know, people, the literacy level, the uh, civic engagement in some tiny countries just is almost embarrassing for us as Americans when you pr uh, compare percentages. But how about the local elections? How, how worked up do people get about school board elections, about uh, county commissioners? And that's where some of these issues are descending to now, right? Mm -hmm. It's like there, there are certain people out there with the Pandora's box of ills looking for any little keyhole, however small, to cram these ills through. So we got to get as excited about our local elections and our state legislators, because what are state legislators doing now? and getting away with that half of America is horrified by our, uh, on most days a lot more than half of America. And so, uh, yeah, our mobilization has only begun. And so it's too soon for us to be patting ourselves on the back or too soon for us to be saying, oh, we tried that, doesn't work. You know, we voted, we got more people to vote, we got more people to go out and protest. Now, I haven't physically shown up in the last two years to protest anything because I've got to protect my family from various things because of various kinds of uh, 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 conditions people have. But uh, my, my daughter went to a protest, my granddaughter went to a protest, you know, masked up like they were going to walk on the moon, I think. But, you know, uh, they had to. You know, they felt like they really had to. I want to encourage this. I, I would love us to have so many people in the streets, right, that, that it, it can't help but get people's attention. But in the end, if the same guys, and it's mostly guys, are in positions of power doing what their donors want them to do, yeah, things are not going to change. But we can get other people in. We really, truly can. We see some of those people in the January 6th committee meetings right now, and we're so proud of them. Uh, that are reasonable, that are using what Thomas Paine in 1776 called common sense. And by the by the by the way, he's my spirit animal, Thomas Paine, because he was a guy who wrote a little book called Common Sense in January of 1776, when most Americans apparently wanted to reconcile with England. And he just said no in his parent in his little pamphlet, Common Sense. He says no, no, no for the following reasons. And people started reading this and buying this. A hundred thousand copies sold, I think, in the first month when America only had a couple million people. He ended up selling half a million copies of this little book. It turned the tide in a matter of months, so that by July 1776, we're writing the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. So there is an example of one guy with a small book, 
making a difference. So that's what I've just sort of been clinging on to, like a desperate man in the ocean clinging on to a life raft, hoping my little book, The Everyday Patriot, can make some difference in people's lives. And the early indicators are that it can. I mean, the people have gotten excited about this book. I just wrote, wrote, co-wrote an op-ed with a guy who was introduced to me by one of the writers on the Stoics, uh, a guy who lives in Athens, uh, uh, Greece right now, um, uh, Donald Robertson, who was a therapist, cognitive behavioral therapist before he started getting interested in the Stoics. And he mm -hmm. saw me announce the Everyday Patriot online. He said, oh, there's a friend of mine who would love this book. You got to meet my friend. I said, sure, you know, put us together. So email, put us together. And then we Zoomed. Uh, so this was a guy who was a Marine. Then he was a CIA officer in charge of paramilitary operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, and two other places equally bad. Um, he served as assistant undersecretary of defense uh, for, I think, two overlapping two administrations and was known as kind of the nonpartisan guy in the Pentagon. He's in retirement now, saving child soldiers in Africa training Navy SEALs, working with veterans organizations. And so we end up with an hour Zoom. He's on everybody's call list, you know, CNN, ABC, New York Times, for foreign affairs, and now for domestic terrorism, a new development, because he's a guy who's seen where certain trends in America right now, he's seen in other countries where it can end up. And so they're calling on this guy to be sort of prescient about, okay, what do we need to do to stop us from going in that direction? And so we got to talking about the ideas of the book and he said, let's write an op-ed together uh, called The Everyday Patriot. And we did, we did just last week and he's been out of the country for a few days. Can't tell you where, I'm just kidding. But he'll be <laughs> back in a day or two and uh, he's gonna pitch it to his media contacts. And so again, here I am sitting in this room at my desk with my little book, The Everyday Patriot, thinking, oh, I wanna make a difference for somebody. How can me, one person? Then I think back at Thomas Paine and I think, okay, America was much smaller then, uh, but still it's like the firefighter who sees the blaze and he's not going to stay outside saying, what's the chance that I could make a difference here? You know, he's going to run into the building. Well, I'd much rather run into this particular philosophical fire, right? And that's what I think of that I've been doing. So that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, Leah. But I really think we're just getting started with these things we need to be doing. And we shouldn't be despondent or give up hope too soon because it hasn't turned the tide yet. Because most major revolutions in human life have looked impossible before they happened. Uh, nobody knew the Berlin Wall was coming down until it did. Nobody knew the Soviet Union would break up until it did. There are so many things that have happened in human history, the Black Swan, uh, uh, Tlaib's book, that nobody saw coming and it would have looked impossible. If you were one of these people trying to make it happen, your friends would be saying, give up already. You know, It's not gonna happen, then all of a sudden it happens. So that's my hope for America. We've got great DNA that's been expressed inadequately. We've never lived up to our ideals, but we got the right ideals. And so let's run with that ball. Let's run with that ball as much as we can. Yeah. And then so outside of voting, what else can we do? <laughs> what is that everyday thing? It's that everyday thing because the voting itself is a gesture into the void unless we create it's like tossing seed out on infer unfertile soil, right? I asked a biologist once, I was looking at this parable of the four soils in the New Testament because it was relevant to what I was doing in Plato's lemonade stand. 
because I see people, audiences, people. So I've had chances as a philosopher to speak to over 1,200 audiences, ranging up to 10,000 people in a room, right? Uh, who, who has that chance among, in the philosophy world? Who among us has that chance? Well, I've had that chance. And I'll see people sitting next to each other. One guy's like perplexed and the other guy's on fire, right? So what's the difference? Why do speakers... They speak to a group of people, the same ideas everybody in the room here. Some people use the ideas to change their lives. And other people say, oh, that was good, and just go about their business, right? So I asked a guy once this whole idea about tossing your vote into the void or into fertile soil. What's the difference? I asked a biologist. I said, what's fertile soil? He said, oh, huh. He said, I guess the best way to say it is to contrast it with sterile soil. I said, okay, I wouldn't have gone there. That's interesting. What do you mean? He said, sterile soil is dirt that has been typically irradiated because it has zero life in it. Mm -hmm. It has zero activity. It's totally inert. And that's the way most people think of dirt anywhere. Dirt, it's inert. He said, no, good soil has in it microbes and bacteria and viruses and worms and other insects. And it's just this profusion of life in good soil. So when the seed goes into the good soil, the soil doesn't just receive the seed. The soil partners up with the seed to make great things happen. Well, so voting in a void is like tossing a seed into sterile soil. But being an everyday patriot, voting every day with your time and your attention and with the Boys and Girls Club, with your neighbors, with helping a political campaign with all this, and then voting on top of that, that's a chance of dropping the seed into fertile soil. So that's what I think about voting. It's this small part, important, but small, part of a much more comprehensive practice that we all need to be engaged in. And it's that practice that multiplies the force of your vote. That's the force multiplier. That's the Archimedean leverage. Because without it, yeah, all these arguments against voting from George Carlin to your smart guy in the bar, all these arguments sound pretty good. You know, yeah, this, you can tell me an important election that's ever been decided on one vote, right? I mean, I could tell you elections have been decided on eight votes, right, or 12 votes, but I could have stayed home, you know. And so you can always make that exception for yourself. And, uh, you know, the, uh, statisticians can do these, run these, uh, run these things about what's the chance of your vote making a difference. And you say, oh, yeah, well, I'm just going to stay home and prop up my feet and have the beer. But then when you understand voting in the bigger context, the force multiplier context, the leveraging context, then you say, this is an expression of my dignity as somebody concerned about self-governance, somebody concerned about a better world. Somebody concerned about the fact that if we don't do this, we're just all going to cease to exist a lot sooner than was necessary uh, because of environmental challenges and other things, right? We need a contributive na a nation that's not just about fighting other nations, but we need a nation that other nations can trust, that, that's not so fickle that with every election, all our promises will change, right? We'll renege, we'll renege on everything. No, we've got to build something solid. And I think we can do it. And I think we've moved in that direction in fits and starts all through our history. And I think we're on a, a downswing right now, but I've often compared it to the pendulum swing. And I've told people the worse things get, the more of an optimist I become. Why? Because people can tolerate almost intolerable things. But when stuff gets literally intolerable, it's a wake up call for everybody. Their imaginations get, get on fire and the pendulum starts to swing back. Like I visited Russia right after the breakup of the Soviet Union. I was in St. Petersburg, this beautiful city in 
uh, 19th century architecture was beautiful, but everything mm -hmm. in the 20th century was brutalistically horribly ugly. Weeds in every yard, two feet, three feet high, graffiti on everything. Everything was filthy, dirty, rusty. I thought, how can people live like this? This is like death to the spirit. And then I remembered places in America were just as bad, death to the spirit. It's like all these things matter. And if we can become a great contributor to the international adventure, if we can become a great contributor to the earth uh, as a nation, and I think people can get beyond their petty grievances if they find their dignity in something other. Well, it's like an LA gang leader was asked, why do people join gangs? I think it was the LA Times was doing a, a project. And he said, well, believe it or not, it's not for drugs, guns, money. It's for a need, it's because of a need to belong, a sense of belonging that guys don't have in any other facet of their lives. So they join gangs. We're seeing a lot of that in Proud Boys, Oath Keepers. We're seeing a lot of that in less organized sides of the political divide right now, where people don't have a sense of dignity and worth and belonging. And so they get involved in all kinds of terrible stuff and sometimes just terrible rhetorically, sometimes terrible in more ways than that oppressive stuff, mm -hmm. uh, would-be autocratic stuff. And if we can give them another way to find dignity, not counterfeit dignity, but the real thing as contributors to, to, to toward this great American adventure and this great human adventure, maybe we can start to turn things around, but it's got to be done from the ground up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, obviously, I appreciate so much of this optimism, but, um, well, not but. So we had a guest on Avram Alpert a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about his concept of what it means to live a good enough life. So um, we talked about the, you know, the meritocracy trap. We talked about, yeah. uh, I think his name is Daniel Markowitz. He, uh, that was his kind of conception, his book, uh, The Meritocracy Trap. So uh -huh. essentially, the idea was that, you know, in some way, if you want to kind of, let's say, combat aristocracy and you want to combat elitism, the idea is that meritocracy seemed like it was the way to go. But what's interesting, it's like if you kind of think about it in terms of like you know democracy the republic it also sort of makes you feel a bit hopeless because when we create these concepts again you know democracy meritocracy i mean there's really great intention behind them obviously because the idea is it's like we want to do what's best and the greatest good right utilitarianism we want to do what's best for the great majority because obviously if we don't there's going to be an elite sort of subsection of people that are going to obviously control everything um but even still right in some way it seems like elitism co-ops these things right it co-ops the concept of Republican democracy, it co-ops the concept of meritocracy. So, I mean, I guess the question is, and I know this is going to be a difficult one to answer because I'm not sure anybody can, right? But how do we sort of prevent that from happening, right? How do we sort of keep, and I don't necessarily mean this literally, but I kind of do, how do we keep these concepts pure where we do create something like a meritocracy, but again, it's not just an ultimately benefiting the few and then used as a kind of justification for it. Right. Now, see, that's, that's in a sense, that's the question of all questions politically, right? And, and so that's why it's so tough. And there's a sense in which my next book, um, let's call the Frankenstein Factor, Monster Success and Massive Failure, is about this. It's about the history of grandiose ego and grandiose ambition and how it's played out in every culture. And the Greeks had this concept of hubris, you know, that would be punished by the gods. Uh, in Asia, they have a concept of karma where it's gonna be punished by these karmic laws. Mm -hmm. um, we see this, uh, my book, uh, The Frankenstein Factor is gonna be about motives, means, and methods. The stuff that we hardly ever pay enough attention to uh, because the smartest people in the world uh, purporting to be um, engaged with the best ideals 
like meritocracies, looks like a great idea, can end up through their own motives, means, and methods unleashing a monster they can't control. And we see that metaphorically played out over and over and over again in the financial segment, uh, sector, in politics, in people's personal lives. So a certain a level of know thyself, a certain level of self-knowledge, self-management is going to be important um, uh, uh, to this. But there's a funny thing, because every now and then I try, I try to reread classics. You know, C.S. Lewis said, if a book is not worth reading twice, it wasn't worth reading once. And so, like I mentioned, I did the the uh, Odyssey four times in one year, two, two or three years ago, I did the Iliad twice. I'm rereading the Republic. Mm-hmm. Plato's Republic is so full of amazingly wise stuff and amazingly crazy stuff side by mm-hmm. side. Oh, you want a perfect society? Okay. Um, the poets can't say what they want to say. Uh, the musicians can't even use certain rhythms in their songs because they aren't conducive to courage. And you can't have people married. And you can't have, when they have kids, they can't be allowed to raise the kids for crying out loud. The kids have, have got to be raised without knowing who their parents are. It's like, are you my father? Are you my father? They've got to think everybody's their father, everybody's their mother, because then they'll treat everybody like, and you're saying, Socrates, you're coming up with all these impossible things. For the first time ever in this rewriting of the public, I think Socrates is playing a joke on us. He's pulling our leg. He's having a laugh, as the Brits would say. He's almost saying, oh, you want a perfect society? Okay, do the following seven impossible things, impossible absurd things, then you'll have the perfect society. What's the purpose of that, Socrates? The purpose of that is showing us how you can't structure a society top down and have it work out. We got these ideals, capitalism, socialism, you know, uh, freedom, democracy. <sighs> okay, they can start the process, they can start the discussion, they can spark action, but we're supposed to be spelunkers. We're supposed to be, you know, exploring that cave, uh, right? We're, we're, we're supposed to not just be thinking top down. Theory in practice never works unless you have this adaptivity and flexibility. And that's what my book Plato's Lemonade Stand was all about. I mean, I'm talking about all these books as if I had any idea that I was kind of constructing a, this uh, architectonical philosophy and all these different books, I didn't. But now I see it, uh, how they fit together. Whenever you have ideologues with ideals, but without practical wisdom, you get terrible results. Right. Meritocracy sounded like a great idea to James Conant, president of Harvard, to Kingman Brewster, president of Yale. Yeah, we're letting too many of the uh, same families in New England, these rich families and stuff. Let's diversify and give everybody a chance. You know, yay! it sounds great. And it is great in a lot of ways, except when you apply it wrong. Mm -hmm. When you don't understand, you got to be adaptive. you got to be adjusting all the time. And admitting you were wrong in your first experiment is not a humiliating thing. It's an empowering thing. We need to cultivate that in kids in their education so that when they become community leaders, when they become podcasters, when they become public philosophers, the first thing they try, if it doesn't work the way they thought, they're not too embarrassed to try it a different way. That's what we we find this world of people locked into one way, whether it's working or not. And it's obvious to anybody other than them, it's not working, but they're not, they don't have the self-esteem and confidence to adapt and adjust on the fly. That's part of what we want to cultivate in the civic spirit, right? It's an experiment. You got to do it wrong in order to do it right. There's a thing in the Talmud, uh, you have to read uh, a passage, a wisdom passage wrong 
before you can finally read it right. And in life, it's so often like that, right? You try something that doesn't work, and that's the way you find out what does work until that doesn't work. But it's put you closer to getting to the place that might work. And you're not so, well, the next book I'm actually going to sit down to write is called The Gift of Uncertainty. We live in a world where everybody craves certainty so much they will accept any false certainty rather than face the uncertainty that they fear and yet might be the greatest gift. So we, there's so much we've got to do in terms of training a, philo- a, a, a society in the right kinds of philosophy. But guess what? That's why you, you two guys are here. That's why I'm here. I mean, we can't say, well, there's nothing for us to do. We might as well just entertain ourselves writing books and having podcasts. No, we got so much to do. It's like the world's on fire. And guess who's alive to take care of that situation? Guess who's standing outside the front door of the burning building? Ah, it's us philosophers. Let's mm-hmm. go in and do something. Mm, I love that. So I, I think that discouragement, hopelessness is a tool of oppression. Uh, the, the would-be autocrats want us all to be discouraged and hopeless because that's the way they take over. And so when you understand that hopelessness is a tool of oppression, you say, no, I'm not taking this. I'm going to be like Epictetus. I'm going to be a liberator. I'm not going to let people be oppressed by hopelessness. Well, I'm going I'm to help them shed that, that crap, break those chains. Let's go, let's go get it done. Mm, I love that. Wow, man. So great point, I think, to end that off on. And so, Alan, before we wrap up, so final questions for Tom. Yes, uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, buy the book, uh, where could we do that? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Tom V, my middle name is Victor, Tom, uh, TomVMorris.com, my website. And I have links to all the books, um, uh, take you to Amazon or other bookstores. Uh, uh, there are various pages to find out what I'm doing. Uh, people can contact me through the contact page. I love to hear from folks if they want to ask me a question, philosophize. I try to always be available. In fact, some of the guys working with me said, why do you answer so many emails? You know, you got other things to do. I said, listen, if I'm just reading the ancient philosophers but not hearing what worries people now, I've only got half the formula. I love hearing from people. I love it. Now, Tom, again, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you so much. You guys are, both of you are a joy. And it's a wonderful experience to be with you. Uh, you know, I just want to put out a book every month so I can keep coming back and being on this show. I'm just uh, thrilled to be asked back a second time. And I will, indeed, one of my life uh, bucket list goals is getting back a third time. I love, it. I love it. Tom, thank you so much, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks. See you later. All right, guys, there you have it. Don't give way to apathy. <laughs> and yeah, so if you guys want to follow us, uh, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and also at C's underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the bell. (laughs) And thank you again so much for watching. See you next time.